Taking out your Bibles today, let's turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, and let's talk about body life. Let's talk about the body in just a little bit as we continue on. We're sort of going to start a new series. The plan was is that we would have a three-week series that Brian and Melvin would be, be, be preaching. Sometimes plans change. Sometimes plans change, but I'm going to kick it off today as we're in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter four. Let's go back two thousand. Let's go back two thousand years. Um, Easter's in just a couple of weeks, isn't it? Five weeks, four weeks out now. This is five weeks. And um, by the way, we'll, we'll have two services on Easter Sunday because we want to create some more space for people, and so uh, we'll have a nine. A.M. service, and we'll have a 10:30 service that morning. Um, but you know, when we go back 2,000 years, um, the gathering that took place there at that time, when they, when the church came together, it it wasn't about the programming and it wasn't about the buildings, but it was about one thing. When they gathered, it was a conversation. It was a movement that happened as a result of one thing. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, they didn't have a lot of discussions that we seem to have today in, the, in our churches. There was a lot of stuff that really just didn't matter that much. Are you with me? Are we on the same page? Yeah. But there was one thing that happened. It was a movement, a gathering that took place. And the center of that gathering was the conversation and the belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. There wasn't any other hindrances. That was the conversation when they gathered. And it didn't take long for that gathering to spread because, because of the eyewitnesses, because of the firsthand accounts. The people talked about what they saw, and they talked about what they heard because can you imagine the story of a man being brought back from the dead? Amazing. And so it, is, so it is, it started in Jerusalem and began to make its way out outside. And it wasn't long before the church, that gathering of people, came under persecution. And in the midst of that persecution, there was, there was one man that sort of seemed to head it up, is, is what we know according to the scriptures, and his name was Saul. And here is Saul going about, he's persecuting and he is putting in prison those that were so-called believers or followers of the way or of, of Christ. But then something happened in his life. And Johnny, he goes from being a persecutor to a proclaimer. And Paul would, would be one of the, the ones that would move out. And in missionary journeys, he would go out from that place and, and he would tell others about Christ and about what had happened. And, and other gatherings and other churches began to pop up all over the place. And eventually, Paul was put in prison. But one of the places that he had visited was a place by the name of Ephesus. And he spent quite some time there. We know that he, he was there at least twice, maybe, maybe three times. And, uh, and when Paul was in prison, he wrote some letters. They call them the prison letters. And those letters were written back to to several different groups or individuals. One was to the church at Colossae. Another one was to 
the church at Philippi, to the church at Ephesus, and then all, also we know the book of Philemon, and those are what we know as the prison letters. But the unique thing about the, the, the letter that was written back to the church of Ephesus is that Paul had a very unique relationship with them. And I think it's somewhere in around Acts chapter 20 that, that we find out just how special that relationship was because Luke records in the book of Acts that, that here it was that, that Paul, getting ready to leave, was not planning on coming back to Ephesus, that the story is written down, and Luke recorded it, that here it is Paul calling the elders down to the waterside, and it said, they kissed as they embraced and said goodbye. It was a pretty intense emotional time here by the waterside because here was Paul had invested so much of his life, so much of his energy. He had discipled the people. He had prayed with them. He had walked alongside of them. And here, now here's Paul getting ready to leave. And Luke records the specialness of that relationship. But now Paul, in prison, in Rome, under house arrest, writes a letter back to the church at Ephesus. And I think it's very interesting of how he, how he starts out the letter because he said, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And look at how he identifies the people back at Ephesus. This is pretty interesting. I'm writing to God's holy people, God's holy people, the believers there in Ephesus, who were faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Now listen, let me just ask you a question. I don't know if you're a follower of Christ or not. You may be here, and this may be the first time you've ever, ever entered into the doors of a, uh, of a church, of a body of believers. But for those of us that are believers here, let me ask you a question. How would the people that know you the most, how would they describe you as a follower of Christ? What words might they use? I mean, faithful followers of Christ, that's a that's a pretty descriptive statement. And it, we know that Paul wasn't just talking from secondhand experience. I mean, these are people that he loved. These are people that he spent time with. So here's Paul writing this letter. He's writing this letter to people that he loves, people that he has a relationship with them, and he calls them faithful followers of Christ. Now, the first three chapters of this letter deals with what we've been talking about up to this point their position in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, um, what it means to be part of God's family, what it means to, be, to have an inheritance in Christ. A very key passage in those first couple of chapters that is that passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, uh, 8 and 9, where he talks to us where it's by grace that we're saved by faith, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And so he talks about the position, he talks about coming into Christ, being brand new, and then the last three chapters, he talks about the practical application of what it means to be in Christ. In other words, what does it look like? What does it look like, um, what does it look like when we practice our, our faith? What does it look like in reference to the church body? What does it look like to live and to act and to breathe as God so intended, as Jesus intended when the church was created in birth? Because I tell you what, it's a whole lot easier to get tied up in a bunch of stuff that really doesn't matter for eternity, can it, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to get excited about things that just don't matter and get sidetracked 
And Paul knew that. And so what he does is he writes back and he says, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the body of Christ. Let's talk about body life. And let's talk about what it means to be part of the body. So if you would so entertain me today, let's, let's see if we can read maybe a little bit. If you don't have the scriptures with you today, let's, let's start in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and let's, let's talk just a little bit through these first several verses today as we read in Ephesians 4. But listen, let me, let me pray today because I, I have no clue what God may speak to us here today. And I have no clue what you sitting there in the pew might hear. But this is what I know. The Lord loves us and he desires for us to have a deep, deep relationship with him. What a, man, one, of the, one of my favorite verses um, is a verse, I, I have it memorized in, a, in, a, in, the, um, in, a, in another translation, but, it, but it, it says in Ephesians chapter 3, now to all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or imagine or think. Glory to him in the church and to Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever and ever. And one of the things that I think that Paul wanted to communicate to the people at Ephesus, and I want to try to communicate it as well as I can to today, is the depth and the breadth of God's love. Because if we can come to understand just how much he loves us, man, it compels us to want to live for him and to serve him with great purpose. So let me pray today as we start our time. Father, thank you. I pray that in our, our readings today, as we read the scripture, Father, that you would be here with us. You are the teacher. You are our teacher. So, Father, I pray today that our hearts would be very susceptible to hear what the Holy Spirit speaks. For the person here that's a follower of Jesus, Lord, what is it you're saying? For the person that is yet to follow Jesus, that is yet to commit their life, that is yet to make that decision to trust and obey you, Father, what is it that you're saying to them this morning? Father, may our ears listen. May we be attentive as we read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me read this with you. This is what Paul says. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything that I've been talking about, in light of everything that we've been discussing up until this point, he said, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. Now, that's a pretty intense way to describe yourself. Have any prisoners here for Jesus? He said, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble, gentle, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your own. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body... One spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Well, therefore, in other words, in light of all this stuff about what it means to live in Christ, all the stuff that I've told you up until this point that Christ has done for you, in light of the incredible wealth that you have received for being a part of God's family, in light of that, Paul says, listen, there's some things that I want you to do. 
There's some things that I want you to be mind, mindful of. And Paul said, listen, I'm not going to tell you cult to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself because I've already placed myself underneath and I am a prisoner to the Lord. That's a pretty intense way to describe yourself, isn't it? I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner for serving the Lord. And then he says, lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called. Remember, we're talking about the practice of our faith. We're not talking about the position anymore. We're talking about the practice. So in the practice of our faith, live a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. And if you've been called by God and if you've been chosen, the question would be why? You know, Todd, why? Why would you be a Christ follower? Valerie, why would you be a Christ follower? Larry, why would you be a Christ follower? There has to be a, a purpose in the midst of all of that. I mean, is it just a Christ follower so that you can come to church every Sunday? I mean, is that the reason that you're a Christ follower? There's something bigger at stake here. I have to believe that there's something that's bigger at stake, much bigger than that. But it's so easy to settle in and to give in to the devil's and just to settle coming to church every Sunday, yet living like hell the rest of the week. You laugh, but that's, isn't that true? Yeah. Live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. To live for Jesus in such a way that our lives become a light to those who don't know Christ, and we become a fragrant offering that attracts others to Jesus. And he says, hey, let me tell you what it looks like. And then he gives us some, some words. He says, be, always be humble, be gentle, putting our, our others before ourselves. Now, in the Greek and Roman world and in the American culture, humility and gentleness is not something that's, that's valued, is it? I mean, because that would mean that you're weak. That would mean that you... We maybe lay down in the midst of a time that was difficult, gentle and humil- gentleness and humility. But Jesus described himself as one being humble and gentle at heart in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Gentleness isn't a lack of, it's not a, it's not a lack of power, but it's power up underneath control. It's having the ability to be able to do something, but choosing not to do it. It's like putting a bridle and that mouthpiece and that horse's mouth is power up underneath control but the opposite of humility is what it's the opposite of humility pride and pride says what pride says i don't need you pride says you don't matter pride says i can handle it and it's pride that leads to division and eventually the scripture said it's pride that leads to what a fall flat on your face But it's humility that leads to unity. And he goes on to say, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Patience may be also known as long-suffering. It's the the reluctance to revenge wrongs, bearing, holding others up. Patience is the idea of long-suffering and bearing with other others for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. Anybody lacked patience this past week? But Paul said, listen, as a part of the body, as a part of being called by God, he said, listen, be patient. And he said, make allowances for one another. Why? 
for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. Now, let's just be honest. Every one of us got things that tick us off, right? Every one of us have things that are sort of like pet peeves that we just don't like. Every one of us have things that sort of irritate us, especially inside of the marriage relationship, right? Like, you know, the husband doesn't pick his underwear up off the... Let's just get real today, okay? <laughs> Dishes don't get done. Somebody doesn't pay the bills on time. The little extra charge on the other side. I mean, there's always a little pet peeves. The kids don't seem to lift the lid when they go to the bathroom. Maybe that's the husband don't do that. <laughs> and here he is being patient with each other, making allowances for one another. Give one another space. Are we good about giving space to one another? All of us have that thing that's right on the tip of your tongue that you just want to blurt it out. You want to, you want to tell us, but just don't share it. But Paul says, hold on, be patient, make allowances for each other's faults. You can't, but Christ can. You can't, but Christ can. And we got to remember, he's talking to the believers there at the church at Ephesus. He's talking about body life. He's looking back and he's saying, guys, listen, if you want to hold on to what you got, let me tell you what you need to be doing. If you want to hold on to the special unity, the special sense that I know that what I experienced when I was there, there are some things that you're going to have to do. It's going to be really important. So don't forget it. And he says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. In other words, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to stay focused. You're going to have to go to every extent, make every effort to be considerate of the needs of other people. And Paul said that because he knows exactly what Satan does to destroy a body of believers. Because we don't like giving space. And we don't like being patient. We don't like being considerate of other people when they're different than us. Matter of fact, we want to go the opposite direction and go, why aren't you like me? Or why aren't you doing what I think you need to be doing? You can be right and be wrong. And Paul says, listen, he goes on to say there's seven things that we have in common. Seven things as, as believers that unite us. And he, seven times he uses the word one. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Seven realities, spiritual realities that unite us as followers of Christ. One body. One body, not multiple bodies, but the one body. Paul talks about it in his writings that to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says this, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So what he's saying is, look, we're all in this thing together. There's only one body of Christ. It's not multiple. There might be different expressions of that, but there's one body of Christ. One body. I tell Tim a lot of times, I said, that's my, my brother from another mother of a different color, but the same daddy. Yeah. 
Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? One spirit, one Holy Spirit that dwells in the hearts of those. Titus 3, 5 said, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God? That you, that the Spirit of God lives in you. Fellowship. Man, fellowship's an important time. People often ask, why don't you start on time? We do start on time. We start every time on time every week. <laughs> you just don't realize the service has already started. When you walk in those doors, the service has started. It's fellowship time. And when we feel like it's time and the fellowship time is over, then we'll do this other part up here. But fellowship is a very important part of our worship because many of our people don't see each other during the week. And so that fellowship time is very, very intentional for us. It's an important part of the body, and it's an outward expression of the Holy Spirit at work. And then he goes on to say one hope of our calling, and our hope as believers is heaven. Man, that's, man, that's our hope is heaven. It's coming. But we don't have to wait to experience that. We, man, we can be Christ followers here on earth and experience that. One Lord, Jesus is Lord, and to Him we belong before what He did on Calvary. One faith, there is one faith, not many faiths, and we're not saved by our abilities. We're not saved by our actions at all, but by what Christ Himself did. One baptism and one God and Father. We're His children, and He's our Daddy. But as followers of Christ, we need to be reminded that God created us to live in unity. But you know what? That can be so difficult can it it can be so so difficult i was just sharing with somebody right before the service man it would be really easy to be a christian and to be all alone yeah because it would be all about you you wouldn't have to worry about other things you wouldn't have to worry about other people you wouldn't have to worry about getting mad because who would you get mad at yourself you wouldn't have to be worried about what somebody else was saying or what somebody else was thinking. It would just be you. God didn't design us that way, did he? No. And he uses our relationships to help us exercise our spiritual, uh, our, our spiritual muscles. And the truth is this, our spiritual maturity and growth can be seen in how we interact and how we carry on with one another. So how do we grow together? Look at what he says here in, in verses 7 through 10. However... He has given each one of us a special gift of the generosity of Christ. Now, this is going to be pretty difficult. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. Paul's going to make mention of some things in the Old Testament. And he says in verse 8, And that is why the Scriptures say, When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that he said he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. We're one body made up of different parts, but we all have been given spiritual gifts, and he gives us those spiritual gifts for a purpose. Spiritual gifts are given to every believer. If you're writing something down, you need to write that down, because if you're a follower of Jesus, 
If you're one of the ones that Paul was talking to, you have been given a spiritual gifts. Depending on who you talk to and depending on where you want to fall, at least 20 spiritual gifts are given in the scriptures. I want to give you some passages of scripture. I don't have time to talk about it all today. But if you want to go back and look, here's some passages of scripture that you can look. I think maybe we'll put them up on the screen. Some of the passages you can find talk about or discussions about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, and also here in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul said this, that the gifts were given to one another. And it was given for the building up and the encouragement of the body. The gifts were not given for selfish use, for, or, selfish use or selfish gain. But they were given to edify, to equip. They were used to serve others. And this is what Paul says in, in verse 8. He says, that is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and he gave gifts to his people. This is going back to Psalms chapter 68, 18. Let's say that you have two kings of two different kingdoms that go to war. And let's say that one of those, um, and it's a war against good and evil, and let's say that, that the, the one king wins out, and he goes in and he, he captures the people, and he also, while he's there, he finds some of his people that have been, have been taken prisoners, prisoners, and he sets them free, and while he's there, he plunders the gifts and the treasures, and then he leaves that country and he goes back to his home country. And then what he does is he makes a really big deal out of the fact that now he has defeated the enemy. And he, he brings forth all the prisoners that he's, that he's captured. And he brings forth all those, those prisoners of their country that have been set free. And people are so excited. And then he brings the spoils that he's taken back, the treasures and the gifts. And he begins to bestow them and give them upon the people. And the people are fired up. And I want you to think about this from the reference of, here it is, Jesus has been crucified. Jesus is risen. And now there is victory. He's, there's been victory over the, the enemy of our souls. And now God brings his people and now the church to advance his kingdom. And he gives each and every one of us gifts not for our own selfish desires, but so that we can continue to advance the kingdom. And if, if you are a Christ follower, and if Christ has given you gift, as our Heavenly Father has given you a gift, the question is, what gift has He given you, and how are you using that gift to advance the kingdom? I mean, just think about that. Here you are, you're part of a kingdom. The king has bestowed to you a gift. He's given you a gift because you're special, because you're treasured, because you're worthy. And now it's our opportunity to take and to utilize that gift in such a way that we can advance our king's kingdom. So the question for us as believers here is how are you utilizing that gift? And number two, how are you using that gift to advance the kingdom of God? That's pretty intense. I mean, do you ever realize that, man, listen, you're part of a kingdom and that you've been bestowed a gift and you've been given that gift, not for selfish desire or selfish gain, but you've been given that gift so that you can advance God's kingdom. Think about that just for a second. We wonder why the church is suffering as it is today. It's because we're not utilizing what God has given us in the spirit to go out and advance the kingdom. Why? Because we want to build bigger churches. We're not interested about the kingdom itself. 
We want to build a bigger church. Isn't that what it's all about? No. It's about building His kingdom. His kingdom. Let me continue on. Write this down. Spiritual gifts are designed to work together. He says in verse 11, Now, these are the spiritual gifts. These are the gifts that God has given to the church. He lists some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And some, of the, some know these as the leadership gifts. And they're given individually, but they're to be used corporately. And let me just explain them to you really quickly. Apostles, those it means to be sent on mission. It's that one that has the entrepreneurial heart, the gift of prophecy, the, the mouthpiece of God, the one that's able to foretell what will happen in the future, the evangelist, the person's not afraid to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. They willingly share the good news, the pastor, teacher, the shepherd, the one that leads the sheep, that feeds the sheep, that cares for the sheep, that protects the sheep. He's willing to speak truth and love. He's willing in season and out of season to be able to share share and to patiently correct and rebuke and encourage God's people. And Paul is saying, listen, for the church to be effective, these gifts must function together in unity, not in separation, making allowances for one another. If, listen, if you want to see a body of Christ that's moving, see people that are beginning to understand their giftedness and are willing to use that giftedness, not for the sake of themselves, but for the sake of the kingdom. Making allowances for one another. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. If you've ever been on a team, there's always seems to be one place on the team that seems to be more important than others, isn't there? For the baseball team, it may be a pitcher, it may be a catcher. Sometimes we say, well, you know, we put the weakest link in the right field, or we, we put the weakest link to bat ninth. Let me tell you what, every position is important when the game is on the line. Can I tell you what, guys? The game is on the line. Peyton, the game is on the line. Lori, the game is on the line. Matt, the game is on the line. And I don't care what gift it is, my gift is no more important than anybody else's gift here. Nobody's gift. Some of the most important people are the people that welcome people as they walk in the doors. You want to talk about important people? Talk about the people that are serving in the background right now, the, the hundred kids that you don't even see in here. Those are important people that are investing their lives because we want to partner with you as families, not because we want to do it for you. It's not the church's responsibility. That's your responsibility. This is an add-on. Important people. There's no more position more important than another. And the same thing within our spiritual bodies and the body of Christ that God takes and He places those gifts inside of the body so that they can be used inside of that body so that that body can be effective so that body can be used to advance the kingdom of God but it's so easy for us to tend to want to value some gifts or another gifts but that's the humanness inside of us see if heritage is the place that you call home my question is, why has God placed you here? And what are you doing with the gifts that God has in, given you? Now, the, it's the hard thing, guys, because we don't do church as usual. So we don't have all these places and create all these places so that you've got a place so that we can just keep the mechanism running. 
You know one of the hardest things to do? One of the hardest things to do is to see where God's at work and say, I'm available. That's one of the hardest things to do. That's very uncomfortable. We'd a whole lot rather somebody come and tell us what we need to do. And we don't even want to do it. So we'll serve for a little amount of time, and then we say, well, you know, I, you know, we'll come up with an excuse why not to show up anymore. Use your gifts and talents where God is. But every one of us should make ourselves available, right? If it's beyond the walls, serve it beyond the walls. If it's in the children's environments, go to the children's environments. But every one of us in this room ought to be welcoming and kind and generous and loving to one another as they walk in those doors. If I hear that you're not being nice, I'm coming to you. (laughs) That's one of my pet peeves is people that call themselves believers being nasty. Those things just don't mix. I don't understand that. How can you say you love Jesus and not love people? It doesn't work out that way, does it? There's some places to serve at Easter with us doubling up and multiplying services. There'll be some places to serve. There'll be plenty of places to serve at Easter. And if you don't have a place, listen, I know Sheila would love to have some extra greeters. I know, I know that she'd love to have some people that are helping us park cars that day. I know that Sharon would love to have some people that would say, hey, listen, I, I don't know exactly how you can use you in children's, children's environments. We're very particular about that, who works in our children's environments. But if, I'm available. And if you're available and you're not involved in an area, I'll find a spot for you, I promise. Write your name on a card and turn it in the offering plate. Just say, leave your name and number and say, I'm available. Just don't write, I'm, an, I'm available, and don't put your name and number on there. That tells me an awful lot. <laughs> I'm available, but you don't know who I am. <laughs> but if you want to make yourself available and you don't have a place, just say, I'm available. Write it on a card and turn it in. Put it in, that, in those boxes when you leave, and, and somebody will contact you in the next week or so to say, hey, hey, man, what do you want to do? Because we can use you, I promise you. The third thing you can write down is this, spiritual gifts equips God's people to do God's work. He says this in verse 12, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do God's work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. The word equip or prepare gives reference to the mending of bones and setting them straight. Sounds like a sign of a church, doesn't it? Yeah. Our goal isn't to work every day just so you can have a good show on Sunday morning. That's by far the last thing we do at Heritage. This doesn't happen that way. But it's important for us to be able to equip you so that you as God's people can go out into the community and you can live on mission and learn how not only to love God, but how to learn how to love, love other people. This has happened for too long, people. We've bred a generation of people that believe it's the church's responsibility to serve you. And you know people go from place to place to place on what they get out of church, not what they give to that body. Most of the conflicts happen because somebody's not getting what they want when they want it. Shame on you. Shame on you. 
Sometimes I hear, well, you know, the pastor, he's just not preaching deep enough. Let me tell you what. Deep is submission. When you learn that, then we can go a little bit deeper. But that's pretty doggone, that's pretty deep, isn't it? But we hear it all the time. We have a generation of people. What's in it for me? Not how am I going to use what God has given me to advance the kingdom. But it's time to turn the tide. It's time to turn the tide so that we understand that the church would be, should be filled with people who are committed to community. Not just because it's convenient or because it's comfortable. Because it's what we as believers do. It's time to grow up a group of people that, that, that stay in love with Jesus. That love one another as well as Jesus even when it's difficult. It's time to grow up a group of people that understand that spiritual gifts are not just to please ourselves, not just to fulfill a passion so that we can do more so that we feel better, but to understand that God has given us those gifts so that we can extend and advance the gospel. That is the church at work. When we started, we said there were really three different types of people. There are those that are interested and they're going to come because they really don't know, so they're going to come to church every once in a while because they've heard something, they've seen something, something's been talked about, so they're just going to come to church. And that's okay. We want as many interested people to come as possible. But then there are some people that will come, and, and they'll not just be interested, but all of a sudden they'll go, hmm, yeah. And they may want to participate, and they may want to work it beyond the walls, or they may want to do something. It may be the fact that, that they're a believer, but they've just not connected into a, a body. But they want to get involved. They're sort of like trying to get their feet wet, one little step at a time. So they'll get involved. Maybe, maybe they'll say, hey, I'll serve, or I'll do this, or I'll be involved in a certain area. But then there are those people that say, I'm invested. This is where I am. I'm planted. I'm part of this body. I'm part of this fellowship. I want to be part of this church. And as a result of that, you begin to give your tithes and your offerings because you believe in what Heritage is doing or whatever the other church it might be. And all of a sudden you say, I want to get involved in a, in a missional community because I believe that a missional community is a way for me not only to grow spiritually, but it's a place for me to be able to held, be held accountable as well as a place of encouragement for me. And then I want to find a place to serve because I'm invested. I believe in what God is doing. But then he goes on to say, growth. When we live as God intends us to live, we grow. And look at what he says in verses 13 through 16. This will continue until we all come to such unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up in full and complete standards of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth, but instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body of the church. And then he says in verse 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. It's all about spiritual growth. Write this down. Spiritual growth reflects Jesus. Going to a class is not a sign of spiritual growth or maturity. Coming to church every Sunday 
is not necessarily a sign of spiritual maturity. I want to tell you that. I'm sorry to tell you that. I feel bad about telling you that. But there's a lot of people that go to church every Sunday, that give every Sunday, that act like the devil the rest of the week. That's not maturity in Christ. You really want to get down and busy and jiggy with it? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the real deal. You want to talk about maturity in Christ, and I'm going to read it from the New International Version. This is hard. Man, this is hard stuff. But Paul gets all up in our business. This is what he says. Paul says, and I'll show you the most excellent way if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love. And I'm like a clanging gong or a cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and cannot fathom and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now we hear this at weddings, and man, it's so nice, it sounds so good. But this is deep. So if you like deep stuff, this is deep. It's patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Shut up. I thought that would catch your, you know. <laughs> See, y'all took that from the movie last week, right? He goes on to say, not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, Woo! always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we all, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes... The imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see him face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know him fully, even as I am fully known. And I love this. Faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. You want to talk about spiritual maturity? Show me how you're loving other people. How's your relationships? How are you making allowances? Humble? Patient? Gentle? Kind? It's pretty tough. See, when we talk about church growth, we talk about budgets, we talk about buildings, and we talk about butts. Budgets, how much you got in the bank, buildings, when you're going to build something bigger, butts, what you're running, that's the conversations among pastors. No, that's not what he's saying. No, that's not what, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul said, you want to talk about spiritual growth? You want to know what maturity in Christ looks like? Four-letter word, love. Write this down. Growth creates stability. No longer tossed and blown about. Anybody like being on a boat in the middle of the water in the midst of a storm? Uh-uh. Nope. And in the midst of the storm, 
we will reach out for anything and everything, won't we, to try to calm that rocking of that boat. And how many people will even grab a hold of things that are false and things that are untrue and fables because they're trying to stop the situation because they're hurting. We'll even grab on to false teachings because they sound good or feel good. But spiritual growth brings stability. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Everything else sinks and is unstable. Stability comes from knowing the Word because the Word of God is the truth of God. And anything else is deceitful and is counterfeit. The third thing, growth requires cooperation. He says in verse 15, instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body of the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy, growing, and full of love. Look at the person to the left of you and the right of you and say, I need you. Would you do that? Those of you that are married for the first time, your wife looked at you and said, it's about time you acknowledge that. <laughs> I've been telling you you needed me. <clears throat> Literally what it's saying is teaching the truth in love. Not speaking it, but teaching the truth in love. Encourage one another. Help one another. You know, it's been amazing the number of people that have showed up to help people. You know, multiple people that have called saying, listen, what can we do to help Brian and Brooke? What can we do to help Sheila? What can we do to help in the midst of these times? And I pray that as a community of believers that we would always be about helping. Helping and encouraging one another. It's a sign of growth. But how do you think that Jesus helped his disciples to grow? Did he just say, guys, I want you to meet me down at the local temple and we're going to spend a couple hours together? It's not what he said. Jesus hung out with them. And he walked with them. And he talked with them. And he prayed with them. I bet he told jokes together with them. I bet they sit around the table and I bet they laughed an awful lot. I bet there was those times that tears were shed. It's truth and love. Jesus saw something that was out of line. He wasn't afraid to, con to confront him. Because see, that's what a Christian brother does in love. He confronts another Christian brother that's going through a difficult time. He's willing to not only hold him accountable, he's willing to encourage him and stay with him. Jesus wouldn't run from them, but he would run to them. But in the, in the last moments of Jesus' life, where did we see the disciples going? running and hiding. A healthy church is characterized by people who are growing spiritually, sharing life and ser serving other people. Not just hearing God's truth, but they're seeking to apply it. See, the goal isn't for us to get you more committed to heritage. My goal is for you to see Christ as your example and for you seek to, to seek to follow him and for him to become the center of your life. 
That's why I struggle with church membership. I really struggle with that, people. Because for so many years, we've made church membership the priority instead of Jesus the priority. I wrestle with that. I mean, that's just the way it is. I just be upfront and honest with you. Because all of a sudden, the church becomes the center of activity and the center of our focus instead of Jesus being the center of our focus. I am not the center of your focus. Brian is not the center of your focus. Jesus is the center of our focus. Him and him alone. And anything else just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so here's Paul saying, listen, as he writes back to the church, I want you guys to be productive. I want you guys to experience life. I want you guys to go out and I want you to advance the kingdom. But for you to advance the kingdom, you're going to have to understand some things and you're going to have to put some things into practice. So listen to what I'm telling you. And don't just bypass it. Don't just bypass it. And here's Paul in prison writing this letter. And don't you think he had a lot of time to sit down and think about what he wrote? Hello? Yeah, he did. So I don't know how this applies to you today for the Christ follower. I don't know what he says, but you do. The Lord's already spoke to you. Maybe it has to do with spiritual growth. Maybe it has to be, you know, how am I using my spiritual gifts? Maybe it has to do with the issue of how am I living? Am I being gentle? Am I being humble? Am I making allowances for other people that, that seem to get on my nerves sometime when they're different than me. But that's a sign of God at work. May we close the doors. May we close the doors right here. If we ever come to the place of being right is what's most important. Because you can be right and be wrong. And Paul says, listen, I want you to get it right. But Jesus is what's right. He's what's right. For the person that's here today that doesn't know Christ, maybe today is that day that you would say, I don't understand at all, but there's a twinkling that's going on in my heart. And whatever it is, this is what I know. I want this Jesus to be part of my life. This Jesus that you've been talking about, this Jesus, this resurrection from the dead that you've been talking about, then talking about new life and talking about living in freedom, that's the Jesus that I want. I want to accept him and I want to submit my life and I want to follow him. And if that's you today, man, I'd love to talk to you after this service. I'd love to be able to sit down and share with you about what it means to, to trust Jesus in the following. And I wish I could tell you it was just as simple as saying a prayer. No, it's much more difficult than that. It's about willing to give your life, to submit your life, to say, Jesus, I'm putting you in the driver's seat. Forsaking all, I trust him. Paul said, for by grace are we saved through faith, forsaking all I trust him.